Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, cardio nerds. It's Amit. Thanks for joining us on this incredible cardio nerds cardio obstetrics cruise. While we've had clear skies and calm waters for the most part, things are about to get a little rocky as we get ready to dock for our next port of call: pregnancy and pulmonary hypertension with the Dr. Candice Silversides and our fellow lead for this episode, Dr. Kaylee Shapiro. This is a fabulous discussion, but also a sobering one. Because as we will learn, pulmonary hypertension can portend a very high risk for our pregnant mothers, so please pay attention because what you learn today just might save someone's life. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardioners. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Speaker disclosures are available in the episode description. There is no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. And stay tuned for a special message about cardio obstetrics and women heart from Dr. Sharon Hayes. We are releasing this episode on a very special day, Mother's Day 2021. Without a doubt, for Dan, for myself, for all of us cardio nerds and all of you out there, we would be nowhere if not for our mothers. So let's take a moment together to remember, honor, and share our love for our moms on this very special day and every day thereafter. So for all of you cardio nerds moms out there, happy Mother's Day to you. We love you. Hey, cardio nerds, it's Sonia, your host for today's episode of our cardio obstetrics series. Today, Amit and I are excited to be joined by Dr. Kaylee Shapiro and Dr. Candice Silversides for our discussion on pregnancy and pulmonary hypertension. Dr. Kaylee Shapiro is a first-year cardiology fellow at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, interested in both cardiobstetrics and sports cardiology. Welcome, Kaylee. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here today. So I have the distinct privilege of introducing our expert for today's discussion, Dr. Candice Silversides. Dr. Silversides is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. She serves as the director of the Pregnancy and Heart Disease Program and head of the Obstetric Medicine Program. Along with her more than 180 publications and numerous book chapters, she's contributed to a number of international practice guidelines and consensus statements. And she's also helped to develop the CARPREG-2 Cardiovascular Risk Prediction Score. It's great to have you join us, Dr. Silversides. Oh, thank you very much. I'm so pleased to be here. Dr. Silversides, it is such an honor to learn from you today. Before we dive in, though, we'd love to hear from you how you got interested in cardiobstetrics. Well, when I finished my cardiology fellowship, I then went on to specialize in adult congenital heart disease, which was also linked to cardiobstetrics. And that really was because so many of the young women with congenital heart disease who were surviving with their pediatric uh, surgeries were hitting childbearing age, and people were trying to figure out what was the risk of pregnancy and how to best get them through a pregnancy. So when I was training, those questions were just starting to be uh, answered, and the field was evolving, and it was really exciting. It's obviously changed uh, since I started doing it. There's um, a much more diverse cardiac population, so now it's not just congenital heart disease, it's women with cardiomyopathies, with acquired heart disease is now becoming more prevalent because women are getting pregnant older and having more cardiovascular risk factors in general. 
And we're also learning more about genetic aortopathies and genetic arrhythmias and how to manage them in pregnancy. So the field's really evolved. It's continued to remain exciting. But I started back in the day when adult congenital heart disease was a really fundamental part of cardioobstetrics. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Silversides, for highlighting this overlap between adult congenital heart disease and cardiovascular risk in pregnancy. And on the CardioNurse platform, we're really excited to be circling back to that particular topic as part of our upcoming ACHD series. But today we're talking about pregnancy and pulmonary hypertension. So why don't we jump right into that? We wanted to start by talking a little bit about why this is such an important topic, primarily because pulmonary hypertension has been associated with such high morbidity and mortality in pregnancy. But thankfully, the prevalence of pulmonary hypertension in pregnancy is quite low, somewhere between 0.01 to 0.02%. I think that's one to two in every 10,000 births. Although this is rare, this has been rising due to the number of congenital patients, like you mentioned, Dr. Silversides, who are living to childbearing age and the development and implementation of effective pulmonary vasodilator therapy. Yeah, as you mentioned, the prevalence is low, but the mortality with pulmonary hypertension is quite high. There have been two major systematic reviews covering a time span of 30 years and nearly 200 pregnancies. The total mortality of women in the first review was 38% and 25% in the second review. Most of these women died within the first month after delivery, and the major cause of death in these cases was heart failure, sudden cardiac death, and pulmonary embolism. And Sonia, in addition to high mortality, there's also a very high morbidity associated with pulmonary hypertension. A recent study looking at approximately 1,500 pregnant women with pulmonary hypertension from the National Inpatient Sample found that the rate of major adverse cardiovascular events was around 24.8%, with the majority of these complications including heart failure, arrhythmia, and pulmonary embolism. Right. So pulmonary hypertension is not common in pregnancy, but when it is there, it's bad news. So before we jump into a case, I thought it might be helpful to review the definition and classifications of pulmonary hypertension, as they can run quite the spectrum and have different management and implications for pregnancy. Dr. Silversides, do you think you could give us a refresher on the definition of pulmonary hypertension and the WHO group classifications? Sure. So I guess, first of all, the definition of pulmonary hypertension, according to recent guidelines, is a mean pulmonary artery pressure greater than 20 millimeters mercury. And I think you'll all remember that we classify pulmonary arterial hypertension into precapillary or postcapillary, the precapillary being pulmonary hypertension in the setting of elevated mean PA pressure with a normal wedge pressure and a high pulmonary vascular resistance. And in contrast, post-capillary hypertension is elevated PA pressures with an elevated wedge pressure. But beyond that pre- and post-capillary definition, there's also been a classification of pulmonary hypertension based on the diagnosis. This has been used for many years, and the diagnosis classifies pulmonary hypertension into five groups. The first group is pulmonary arterial hypertension. That's often idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, but also includes pulmonary hypertension due to congenital heart disease or connective disease as examples. Group two is pulmonary hypertension due to left heart disease. And the classic example in women of childbearing age would be women with mitral stenosis. Group three is pulmonary hypertension due to lung disease or hypoxia. We tend to see that less in young women. Group four is chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension and other pulmonary artery obstruction. 
And finally, group five is pulmonary hypertension with unclear or multifactorial mechanisms. Thank you for that wonderful review, Dr. Silversides. But this begs the question, why is pregnancy such a big deal in patients with pulmonary hypertension? And to help us understand this question, I think we would need to do a little review of the physiologic changes in pregnancy. We've been talking about this a lot over the course of this cardio obstetrics cardiac series, but who doesn't love a little bit of hemodynamics? So let's do a quick rehab. During pregnancy, there are three major changes that can be considered quite dangerous in pulmonary hypertension patients. These include an increase in cardiac output, vasodilation with a decrease in SVR, and a hypercoagulable state. So Dr. Silversides, can you explain why these adaptations during pregnancy can pose such a problem for patients with pulmonary hypertension? Yeah, so in pregnancy, what happens is you have an increase in your plasma volume that fills up your heart. You end up with an increase in your stroke volume. And the increase in stroke volume in combination with an increase in heart rate results in an increase in cardiac output. But in the setting of pulmonary arterial hypertension, there's an inability of the right heart and the pulmonary vascular bed to accommodate this increased plasma volume and to mount an increased cardiac output. You can imagine the increased plasma volume if you're trying to fill a stiff abnormal right ventricle may lead to problems. Also, if you have a pulmonary arterial hypertension, and you can't decrease your pulmonary vascular resistance, you may end up with an abnormal hemodynamic response in response to the increased pulmonary blood flow that occurs during pregnancy, and those can lead to increased RV afterload. So one issue is just this increased filling of the heart and the increased filling of the pulmonary vascular bed that can't adapt to that change. As you also mentioned, there can be a drop in the systemic vascular resistance and a drop in the blood pressure. The drop in SVR can be particularly problematic in women with pulmonary hypertension with intracardiac shunts, where there's a fine balance between the PVR and the SVR. It can also be problematic where the blood pressure drops, for instance, where you end up with decreased RV perfusion in the setting of hypotension, and that can lead to a a cascade of complications in women with pulmonary uh, arterial hypertension. And then, as you mentioned, it's also a prothrombotic state. And in addition, I would add one more, one more change that's important. Pregnancy is also a proarrhythmic state. And certainly some of the maternal morbidity and mortality is related to arrhythmias and sudden deaths. So just to kind of summarize, the result of all those hemodynamic changes that are tend to be poorly tolerated in the setting of pulmonary arterial hypertension lead to complications. So they can lead to maternal complications, the most serious being maternal deaths. But you can also see uh, right heart failure, pulmonary hypertensive crisis, and arrhythmias, including sudden deaths, and pulmonary embolus. You can also have maternal obstetric complications, like bleeding complications, that can occur in this population. And finally, those abnormal maternal hemodynamics, and in addition to other factors we probably don't understand all that well, lead to adverse fetal and neonatal complications, including fetal and neonatal deaths poor growth of the baby, and also uh, preterm birth. So there's lots of complications that can occur because of the inability to tolerate those hemodynamic changes of pregnancy. Wow, Dr. Silversides, that was a incredibly helpful review. I feel like I could just picture all of that in my head. So thank you for that. I can imagine patients with severe pulmonary hypertension are at very high risk of pregnancy-related complications, as you mentioned, given their inability to appropriately augment their cardiac output. But what about patients with mild to moderate increased pulmonary pressures or pulmonary vascular resistance? Do they still have the same high risk? 
Yeah. So there's a number of variables that will determine the risk of pregnancy and how women can accommodate to those hemodynamic changes. In part, it's based on the severity of the pulmonary arterial hypertension, but it's also based on the woman's diagnosis. So the etiology of their pulmonary hypertension, it's based on whether or not the patient is stable or not stable, their functional class whether or not they require supplemental O2, whether or not they're needing pulmonary arterial medications to be stable, and also whether or not their RV size and function are normal. So I think we can think of pulmonary hypertension as mild, moderate, or severe, but the variables that predict their outcome in pregnancy are more complex than that. What I would say is, you know, clearly if you have more severe disease, you're more at high risk. However, even women with mild or moderate pulmonary hypertension can destabilize from the hemodynamic stress of pregnancy. And so in general, we say that there's really no truly safe cut point in the setting of pregnancy for women who have pulmonary hypertension. I, I would want to add one comment, though. I think what will happen in your career is that we will start to understand more. Right now, most of what we understand is based on small series, retrospective series, mixed populations. Some women are using pulmonary vasodilators, some are not. But I think what will happen as we start to acquire more data prospectively in a more refined way, we will someday identify the women who maternal morbidity and mortality is perhaps lower and we'll be able to give a better risk assessment. But we're not quite there yet. And so currently, any woman who has pulmonary hypertension, true pulmonary hypertension, in particular pulmonary arterial hypertension, should be advised to avoid pregnancy. Oh, thank you. Very helpful overview. And I think as you highlighted, uh, there's clearly still a lot of work that needs to be done in the field in cardioobstetrics and the overlap with pulmonary hypertension. So I think as you've highlighted, it can be really challenging to manage some of these patients with pulmonary hypertension who are also going through the normal hemodynamic changes of pregnancy. So we thought it would be helpful to start with a case that might help highlight some of these challenges. So let's start off with our patient. We have Miss L. She is a 30-year-old G3 P2 female with a history of group 1 pulmonary hypertension and factor 5 Leiden heterozygosity who presents to the cardiology office after a newly discovered pregnancy. She's currently nine weeks pregnant. So before we delve into her case, I was wondering, does the subgroup of pulmonary hypertension affect the maternal outcomes in these pregnant women? Yeah, so this data is still based on small numbers, but there certainly is some data to suggest the different groups of pulmonary hypertension have different outcomes. So for instance, there's been two recent studies that I would direct you to. The first is by Karen Sliwa, who reported on just over 150 pregnancies in women who were in the ROPEC study, and she looked at the outcomes according to the most common diagnoses. And in women of childbearing age, that includes idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary hypertension due to congenital heart disease and pulmonary hypertension due to left-sided heart disease. And she found that the morbidity and mortality was highest in women with idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension and uh, lowest in women with pulmonary hypertension from left-sided heart disease. She also found that complications were higher in women with more severe forms of pulmonary hypertension. And in her study, she defined that as a RVSP on echo greater than 70 millimeters mercury. 
A year later, there was a study done by Marie-Louise Meng, who looked at 49 pregnancies in women from four big U.S. tertiary or quaternary care centers, and she reported similar findings. She found that maternal mortality did vary according to the pulmonary hypertension subgroup. She found a 23% mortality in women who were in group one, compared to a 5% maternal mortality in women who had other forms of pulmonary hypertension. And in that same study, she found that women with severe pulmonary hypertension, classified as a mean PA pressure greater than 50 millimeters mercury or a systolic PA pressure greater than 70 millimeters mercury, had a higher need for advanced therapies such as inotropes, higher need for pulmonary vasodilators, and ECMO when compared to women with milder pulmonary hypertension. Thank you. That's very interesting and helpful data. So I guess trying to take that information and then looking back at our patient, she actually had two prior pregnancies approximately 10 years ago, which were both complicated by acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Her most recent pregnancy had actually required an ICU admission in the postpartum period, during which time she required milrinone for worsening hypoxemia. Yes, or both her pulmonary hypertension and her prior pregnancy history are definitely giving me some concern. At this point, she's still pretty early in her first trimester. So Dr. Silversides, what are your initial thoughts about this patient at this point, given her history? Well, similar to you, I am quite concerned. She has a diagnosis that we know is associated with poor pregnancy outcomes. She's also had a history of serious complications in a prior pregnancy that I don't think can be dismissed. I think we still need more details about her. And, you know, I'd like to know a little bit more about her clinically, perhaps her six-minute walk test, her echo, her BNP, a bit more details about her hemodynamics on cath. But certainly, even without those, I would tell you, I would be aligned with you and that I'd be very concerned about pregnancy going forward. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about what she looks like when she comes to the office. So during her visit, she reports feeling relatively well, although she does admit to being relatively sedentary at home. On exam, her vital signs are all within normal limits, with an oxygen saturation of 96% on room air. Her exam showed a regular rate and rhythm with a loud P2. Kaylee, love that you noticed her P2. So far, these findings sound pretty reassuring, but she's still pretty early in her pregnancy. And as you mentioned, given her complicated obstetric history, I worry we may be falsely reassured. So Dr. Silversides, you mentioned the BNP and ECHO, but what else would you recommend for this patient at this point? Well, first of all, I do want to agree. I think women with PAH can uh, be falsely reassuring because they can walk in and look pretty good and they're young. You know, they're not like the normal 70-year-old you might see on the ward. And so so you think they're going to be okay, but they can spiral uh, downward very quickly. So uh, I do think you also have to have a very high level of caution in these patients. But in addition to what I said in terms of trying to objectify her functional class and have a sense of where she was at with her six-minute walk, I'd like to know her O2 sats, whether her sats dropped when she walked, the distance she could walk. I'd like to know her echo results, as I said, a BNP earlier. I'd also want to know what meds she was on, if she was on any meds for her pulmonary hypertension, whether or not any were potentially teratogenic if she's pregnant. And that's, that's probably where I would start. I would also like to dig back through her chart again and get a bit more details of what her hemodynamics looked like at the time of her last cath. It may or may not be recent, but at least to have some sense of what her cath numbers look like at least would help inform us of her risk of pregnancy. 
Okay, well, let me start by giving you her echo results, which showed her normal systolic function with an EF of 55 to 60%. She had systolic septal flattening that was consistent with right ventricular pressure overload. She had a severely dilated right ventricle, along with right ventricular hypertrophy and severely decreased RV function. Her estimated um, right ventricular systolic pressure was 103 millimeters of mercury with a dilated IBC. Wow, so that's an impressive echo. You know, as, as reassuring as her physical exam was, this echo, I think, is equally concerning. And I, I love Dr. Silverside's how you give us this caveat for taking care of young patients. I think identifying sick versus not sick is such a tenet for us in our approach to patients. And, and young patients just have such an incredible physiologic reserve that they seem and they appear on surface to not be sick until it may very well be too late. So this echo is certainly starting to raise red flags. How do you put this together in our patient's context? Well, now I'm even more worried about her. Uh, I mean, to be honest, uh, the ability of the right heart to accommodate to those hemodynamic changes is a major factor because right heart failure and pulmonary hypertensive crisis are major causes of maternal morbidity and mortality. So the fact that her RV is so abnormal, it's dilated, it's dysfunctional, her RVSP is very elevated. And, you know, if we look back at that paper I mentioned by Karen Sliwa, where the women who did worst had RVSPs greater than 70 millimeters mercury, well, she's well beyond this. So this echo adds more substance to the high-risk nature of this pregnancy. So Dr. Servicides, could you tell us a little bit more about what the recommendations are for pregnancy in pulmonary hypertension patients? And specifically, given the limited information that we have so far, mostly just this echo result, what would you recommend for this patient? Well, even with somewhat limited information, I can tell you that she still is very high risk for both maternal morbidity and mortality. And I would discuss those with her in detail, but in particular discussing the risk of maternal mortality because I think it's substantial. In this scenario, I would discuss the option of termination of pregnancy because of the high risk of maternal mortality. This is obviously an extremely emotional and scary time for patients. And based on her background, culture, or spiritual beliefs, it can also be a really challenging conversation for providers to initiate with their patients. Do you have any tips for us on how to navigate these difficult conversations? Yeah, I don't know if I have great tips, but I, I would tell you that I still think honesty is the best policy. I think you should offer women as much information as we currently know so they can make informed decisions that are right for them. I, I think you also do have to really be sensitive to how you're delivering this information. Because remember, some women will have, it will have never occurred to them that they can't have a pregnancy. They may have been planning on having a kids and family, and this information can really derail them. So you do have to use sensitivity, uh, but I think you have to do it to accommodate to the, the patient uh, that you're seeing. I, I don't think there can be a one size fits all approach. People don't always do it right, and people are just devastated after. There's actually little support groups on the internet where people have been told this news, and they kind of rally together to try and help each other out, or they even meet up with other patients to just kind of vet this through and figure out how they're going to get around it in their heads. It's really complicated. It sounds like these can be really, really difficult and challenging conversations. So with this particular patient... There were multiple discussions held regarding the risks both to herself as well as to the fetus. 
and she ultimately decided to continue with her pregnancy, despite the understanding that she had approximately a one in two chance of dying during the pregnancy or in the postpartum period. Wow, Kelly. I can't even begin to imagine what must be going on through her and her partner's minds, despite being told about the great harm that could come to her during the course of a possible pregnancy. You know, she's deciding to continue it. You know, it just kind of goes to show you the, the potency of this drive to have a family. Given her wishes to continue with this pregnancy and considering the risks involved, Dr. Silversize, what would be your next step in management? Would you consider a role for pulmonary vasodilators? And if so, which options might be safe in pregnancy? So the first thing I would do after making sure that she was truly informed and that her family was informed, not only about the risks of pregnancy, but the risks after pregnancy, including, you know, if, if things happen down the road, just is the family ready to support a child? So I would make sure that really fundamental stuff was all there so she could make a, a decision that's best for her. Then I would lay out what we need to do to get through pregnancy safely, or at least the best we can offer her. And one thing is that she would need continued surveillance in pregnancy so she would have frequent follow-ups, not only with myself as a cardiologist, but also with the PAH team. So I work jointly with the PAH team. She would need to be followed by high-risk obstetrics. She would need to see OB anesthesia uh, and be, and that care would all need to be coordinated very closely. She would also need serial echoes throughout pregnancy and done quite frequently to ensure the RV wasn't deteriorating, even if she clinically was well. I use serial BNPs throughout pregnancy. So I would lay out the plan so she knows what to expect as pregnancy goes forward. Then in regards to the question of pulmonary vasodilators, I would certainly think about the option of pulmonary vasodilators with the hope that maybe they'll mitigate some of the risks. So the option for pulmonary vasodilators in general include calcium channel blockers, which uh, definitely have been used in pregnancy and are considered safe in pregnancy. Endothelian receptor blockers are another broad uh, category that you can use to treat pulmonary arterial hypertension. So that's like bosentin or, or macetentin. However, those are potentially teratogenic, so they are not used in pregnancy. So if she was on an endothelian receptor antagonist, we would stop it. If we could, you know, there may be some very rare exceptions where you continue with a teratogenic medication because it's really the only way to stabilize a woman who's very unwell. But typically, we don't use teratogenic medications during pregnancy. The other category for treatment to PAH is the phosphodiesterase inhibitors, such as sildenafil or tadalafil, and we use those in pregnant women. And after calcium channel blockers, those are probably the second most commonly used oral agents in pregnancy in the various series that have been reported. The other uh, medication which are typically given intravenously are the prostacycline analogs, such as Flolan or Remodulin. And again, if you look at any of the pregnancy series in contemporary eras, those would be the typical intravenous PAH meds that are used in pregnancy. So again, I think there's a few different options, either oral or intravenous, but I certainly would, in conjunction with the PAH team, start talking about the initiation of PAH medications. And may I ask a follow-up, Dr. Silversides, uh, what if a patient is on Riosigwat prior to pregnancy? Is that a medicine that's safe to continue? Yeah, well, you know, all these PAH meds that are a little bit newer compared to, you know, Flolan, which has been used for now quite a while, there's less pregnancy data. So there's concerns that it may not be safe in pregnancy, firstly, and there's no large series in pregnancy. So it is not a PAH medication that I would use in pregnancy. 
Okay, so for this patient, given the severity of her pulmonary hypertension, what I didn't mention before is that she had previously been managed with several medications, including Celexapag, which is one of the prostacycline receptor agonists, Tadalafil, and furosemide. So she was continued on these medications during the initial visits during her pregnancy. Although interestingly, she had a lot of difficulty taking her oral Celexapag primarily because of the nausea and vomiting associated with pregnancy. So she was transitioned over to IV epicrostenol instead. And Kelly, if I remember correctly, our patient has heterozygosity for factor V Leiden, which places her at an increased risk of pulmonary embolism. Dr. Silversides, you mentioned that pulmonary embolism is one of the biggest contributors to mortality in pulmonary hypertension patients. So how should we approach anticoagulation in our patient? So prevention of DVTPs is typically done with heparin in pregnancy. Heparin's a big molecule, doesn't cross the placenta, doesn't get to the baby, considered safe in pregnancy. It's obviously complex because it's they're injectable and there is some potential side effects and they're costly. But typically we would use low molecular weight heparin because it's obviously a superior heparin compared to unfractionated heparin, especially in pregnancy. There are other options to anticoagulate women such as warfarin, but warfarin's potentially tried the DOACs are, you know, the new ones on the market, but there is some data that they may be unsafe in pregnancy. I think there's a debate. Data is being collected currently. Big series are starting to be published, but we have a lot less safety data with, with those newer anticoagulants. So, so the typical route would be to start low molecular weight heparin. It's weight-based in pregnancy. And I, I would, if you start women on anticoagulants for any reason, I do it in conjunction with my obstetric hematologist. So again, going back to this idea that it really is a team approach for these complex patients. Okay, great. So this patient was ultimately anticoagulated with low molecular weight heparin, and she did fairly well into her second trimester. At approximately 19 weeks, she was noted to have some increasing lower extremity edema and signs of volume overload which is thought to be out of proportion to her pregnancy, and therefore her furosemide dose was increased. She was admitted briefly for an upper respiratory infection, at which time she was actually found to have a new oxygen requirement at night and was discharged home on two liters of oxygen. Wow, so pregnancy is challenging enough as it is without having to carry around an oxygen tank. Dr. Silversides, as we're getting closer to the window of viability for her fetus, what are some of the things that we need to consider with our approach to her delivery? So I think the first thing is you need to make sure you've assembled your multidisciplinary team so you can construct a safe delivery plan. The second thing to remember is to continue to optimize your care. The better shape the woman is going into delivery, the better outcomes you'll have at the time of labor and delivery. But once you get your team together, you have to start thinking about a delivery plan. The delivery plan has to address a number of factors. So first of all, you need to figure out the timing of delivery. And most of the time in women with pulmonary arterial hypertension, you will deliver early. Exactly how early will depend on the stability of the patient. But most patients would consider delivering by 37 weeks, even in a very stable patient. In an unstable patient, you may deliver earlier than that. You need to figure out the location of the delivery. So women are often followed in obstetric hospitals, but you may need the backup of the cardiology team, the ICU team, the advanced heart failure team, if you think she's going to destabilize and need ECMO. So you've got to figure out what the setup is locally and whether or not you have the infrastructure to deal with a woman with PAH who becomes unwell. You also need to think about the mode of delivery. So that means whether or not you're going to do a vaginal delivery or a cesarean delivery. Most of the time, if women are stable, we try to do vaginal deliveries. They're associated with less 
complications. But again, that really is dependent on local expertise, local comfort, and the stability of the patient. We also have to address what kind of monitoring women will need. So do you need lines? Do you need art lines to monitor blood pressure? Do you need other type of monitoring? Do you need O2 sats? And that plan would be in, in conjunction with OB anesthetists who will be monitoring a lot of those hemodynamic parameters at the time of labor and delivery. While the uh, anesthetists are there, you also need to talk about what type of anesthetic could be done most safely. So again, typically we would hope to do an epidural, for instance, with good pain management, trying to avoid a GA if possible because they are associated with more complications in women with pulmonary arterial hypertension. And finally, beyond just those principles that relate to the delivery itself, you do have to remember that most of the complications that happen in women with pulmonary hypertension actually happen early after delivery or in the first month or so. And so that first week is a really high-risk period. Women have received fluids at the time of labor and delivery. There's fluid mobilization. They may have lost blood. Lots of hemodynamic changes are happening at that time and things can happen. So you have to plan how you're going to monitor them really closely and adapt to any changes that need to be addressed in a very quick fashion. So typically you would put them in either a coronary care unit or a intensive care unit to monitor them after they deliver. And usually we have an extended postpartum stay of kind of at least a week after delivery just to make sure they're truly stabilized. And one last point about after delivery. I mean, we tend to try and diuresome after delivery. You know, the diuresis is based on how they're doing and what their clinical status is. But the principle being you really want to prevent volume overload and right heart failure and that whole cycle that can happen early after delivery as fluids mobilize. So early diuresis in that monitored setting is really important. Wow, this is amazing. Thank you. It really sounds that multidisciplinary teamwork is the real cornerstone to trying to get these patients safely through delivery. So this same approach was was attempted for this patient. Anesthesia was consulted preemptively to help determine an optimal delivery approach in conjunction with cardiology and maternal fetal medicine. The patient was admitted again around 24 weeks with a cough and persistent hypoxemia. During that admission, she was encouraged to stay inpatient for the duration of her pregnancy, but she ultimately declined an admission and returned home. She then re-presented at 27 weeks with hemoptysis and increased shortness of breath. She was felt to be significantly volume overloaded and was admitted to the CCU for IV diuresis. So right at this time of admission, what would you recommend as the sort of the initial workup while she comes into the hospital? So, you know, I'm an echocardiographer, so of course I'd get an echo. I, I couldn't do a workup without an echo. I'd also get a BNP to see where we're at, although based on this story, it's going to be elevated. I would get a CT scan because you do have hemoptysis and it may represent something more significant that you might have to deal with even in an interventional way. She's also an anticoagulant, so you better know if she's bleeding into her lungs. The other thing is I'd really now be mobilizing that PAH and advanced heart failure teams because she does look like now she's teetering on perhaps not making it through this pregnancy, which really means she could crash at any time. So I'd make sure everybody knows her that needs to know her and we have backup plans if things go sour. And, you know, finally, uh, the other issue is she, she does have both left and right 
right-sided heart failure. She had had a normal LV before. You know, she is destabilizing. If you kind of go back to that principle that you really want her optimized before she delivers, if you don't think you can do that clinically, then a right heart cath would be useful. You can do it safely in pregnancy. You can get some numbers and you can make sure you know exactly what you're dealing with and that she is optimized. I'm just going to remind you, though, of one thing about putting wires or pressure catheters in PAs. During pregnancy, all your vascular bed is more fragile than in a non-pregnant state. And there is reports of rupture of pulmonary arteries with interventions in pregnancy. So you do have to remember, you know, there is potential complications. But again, in somebody that's very sick, where the hemodynamics might help you guide therapy, I, I think it would be reasonable to consider getting some numbers before you deliver her so you can truly optimize everything and, and make sure you don't miss anything. Actually, thank you for bringing that up. I think I had never even known that there were such risks associated with the right heart cath itself and the fragility of some of the vasculature. So she did undergo a right heart cath, and I'll give you the data. Her right atrial pressure was 18. She had a mean PA pressure of 53. Her wedge pressure was 33 with a transpulmonary gradient of 20. Her PA sat was 62% with a FIC cardiac output of 5.6. Her PVR was between 3.5 and 4 Woods units. Though she still had pulmonary hypertension, her PVR had improved remarkably on IV ibuprostenol. A multidisciplinary discussion was then held with maternal fetal medicine, and plans were made for a C-section at 27 weeks. Yeah, there's clearly so much going into the thought process and so much nuance to the decision-making here. And Dr. Silversides, you gave us such a comprehensive overview of what goes on in your mind with regards to delivery planning. But at this point, are there any additional considerations leading up to her planned? Well, again, this should be a planned deliver. She's also an anticoagulant. So you have to make sure they're stopped before she delivers. Everybody has to know that they're working together. She is also on an intravenous pulmonary vasodilator. So OB anesthesia has to be aware of that and be ready to manage it during labor and delivery. And, and finally, I, I guess I can't highlight it enough. We, you really do need a post-delivery care plan for an intensive care unit so you can diurese them and monitor for complications and really try and nip things in the bud so that you don't have really adverse outcomes that escalate. The other issue, uh, I think, in someone who really is hemodynamically not looking good like this is making sure that the advanced heart failure team is involved in case you need to consider something like ECMO if she really does crash at the time of delivery or early after delivery. So again, really planning for the worst, hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. Okay, let me let me tell you a little bit more about the rest of her course. So she ultimately underwent a C-section at 28 weeks, which was initially uncomplicated. Unfortunately, Dr. Silver says, as you had mentioned, some of the postpartum complications that can occur. Immediately postpartum, she decompensated from a hemodynamic and respiratory standpoint and required both intubation as well as VV ECMO cannulation. Her hypotension was volume responsive and there was concern for an intra-abdominal bleed. And she was therefore taken back to the OR for an X-lap where she was found to have approximately three and a half liters of blood intraperitoneal. She then developed massive DIC as well as worsening respiratory failure. A TEE was performed at that time, which showed that she had developed a large PE, which was deemed to be unsurvivable. At this point, due to her overall poor prognosis, her family chose to transition to comfort care and she passed away. Her baby required a one-month stay in the NICU, but ultimately was discharged home and continues to do well. 
So although ultimately this is a very sad ending to this case, what would be some of the take-home points that you would recommend we can talk about that we should remember when caring for these pregnant patients with pulmonary hypertension? I'm going to give you six. I don't know why six, but six come to mind. The first is that these are very high-risk pregnancies, even in women who look stable. They can destabilize and really adverse outcomes can occur. For women with pulmonary arterial hypertension who become pregnant, because of the risk of maternal mortality, the option of termination of pregnancy should be discussed. Women require multidisciplinary care to have optimal outcomes, so it's really important you create a team of experts that know how to deal with this condition uh, and that you communicate a lot over the course of pregnancy. You should initiate pulmonary vasodilators early to try and prevent these type of adverse outcomes. Women should receive care and should deliver at a center with expertise in PAH and pregnancy. And then finally, I would just remind everybody that most of the complications occur after delivery. And so having a clear, safe postpartum plan is critical to a good outcome. Thank you, Dr. Silversides. And Kelly, thank you so much for sharing the sobering case with us. You know, it, it, it hurts to think about it, right? It, it pains us to think about a young and and vibrant life lost that potentially maybe was avoidable. I think we all, and especially I, get very uncomfortable when reading a guideline statement that says, you know, you you might potentially recommend termination of a pregnancy. There's a lot of emotion that goes around that, but the risk is very real. And so this is actually the reason why we were motivated to do this cardio B series, because, you know, we're not just talking about hemodynamics, we're talking about real lives and families. You know, thankfully the baby survived, but doesn't have a mother. So, you know, even though these discussions are uncomfortable, we respect our patients' wishes and this shared decision-making, and we honor and do our best, you know, to practice medicine along the lines of their value systems. And within that context, I have to say, I, I, I would applaud the team for taking such valiant and comprehensive care for this patient. And ultimately, things happen as, as they will. So with that, I just, I, I'm grateful for uh, your patient, Kelly, for, you know, for, for teaching us about the risks that are involved in this situation. Thanks, Amit. Yeah, it was a very challenging case and a very sad outcome, but hopefully, you know, we've learned from it and can try to take the best care that we can of these challenging patients moving forward. Um, so now last but not least, just to switch gears, Dr. Silversides, what makes your heart flutter about cardiobstetrics? We always like to ask everyone this question. I didn't know if that was a good flutter or bad flutter, but I'll tell you bad flutter is pulmonary hypertension in pregnancy. But good flutter is when I see that you guys are doing a series like this that's going to educate the whole next generation of cardiologists about this really interesting field of cardiology. I think it'll advance the field. It'll change the field. And women will get better care because of this. So that's what really makes my heart flutter in the good way, not the bad way. Well, thanks for sharing that, Dr. Silversides. Going back to what Amit was saying, though, Kaylee, I really want to thank you for sharing such an incredible case with us. You know, we're always taught that pulmonary hypertension is an absolute contraindication to pregnancy. But I appreciate that you shared a case with us today in which our patient declined termination, because it's really these situations that we as cardiologists often struggle and aren't sure how to be helpful consultants to our OB colleagues or how to help our patients. And also, thank you so much, Dr. Silversides, for all of your valuable teaching pearls that you've shared with us today. This has really been an incredibly helpful discussion. 
Thank you very much for inviting me to be here and congratulations on an absolutely wonderful initiative. Thanks for tuning in to the Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Series led by co-chairs and fellows in training, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shah, and brought to you in collaboration with Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. This is Dr. Sharon Hayes. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist at Mayo Clinic, where I founded and maintain an active practice in the Mayo Clinic Women's Heart Clinic. I've also been privileged to serve as a mentor and advisor to Cardio Nerds. With our partner, Women Heart, I have served as a patient advocate and an advisor for well over 20 years. What is Women Heart? It was founded by and for women. Women Heart focuses on serving the millions of women living with or at risk of heart disease, the leading cause of death in women. Women Heart is dedicated to advancing women's heart health through advocacy, community education, and supports the nation's only patient support network for women living with heart disease. As medical director of Women Heart Science and Leadership Symposium for Women with Heart Disease, Each year, I have the privilege of working with Women Heart to train a new class of women living with heart disease from across the country to become community educators and support group leaders. Since 2002, Women Heart has trained over 1,000 Women Heart champions. Women Heart's Scientific Advisory Council is comprised of renowned cardiologists, including many on this program, and offers membership in its National Hospital Alliance, a group of hospitals committed to providing gender-sensitive cardiology care and amplifying the patient voice in their care and treatment. This series is important to me personally since my clinical and research interests include sex and gender-based cardiology, spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD, health equity, and also increasing the participation of women and minoritized people in medical research. Through this lens, I know both how important and also how underemphasized cardioobstetrics has been. Cardiology has been late to own cardio-OB as a concept and important sub-subspecialty for us as cardiologists and for the women under our care. This series aims to change that. Why? Because cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of maternal mortality. For instance, in my own area of interest, SCAD, it may be considered rare, but it is the number one cause of pregnancy-associated myocardial infarction. Second, even if we only utilized what we know now, if that knowledge was truly and fully translated to practice, most cardiovascular disease and its complications related to pregnancy would be detected better managed, and often prevented. Third, we have a huge knowledge gap. Women have not been included in medical research, much less reproductive and pregnant women. So the evidence we have to diagnose and treat and predict outcomes is often weak or even absent. And if we think we have insufficient data for women as a whole, there is truly a chasm to cross for as evidence to optimally care for women of color, particularly African-American women whose maternal mortality is two to four times higher than that of white women. So some of you might be thinking, I already am, or I plan to be a cardiologist. I will not be delivering babies, so why should I, as a true cardio nerd, pay attention to or even care about this topic? Well, I'm just going to stop you there. Half the population is women. The vast majority of women in our society become mothers at some point in their life, and presumably all of you had one. As a physician and cardiologist, even if you do not see pregnant patients in your practice, the role of pregnancy in predicting women's future risk of cardiovascular disease is a critical fund of knowledge that is rapidly evolving. You will need it. And as the science builds, specific to cardio B, 
More attention will be paid to cardiovascular risk management in the preconception phase, especially among women with known heart disease, and as a cardiologist, you will be called upon to address complications that occur during pregnancy and increasingly to be asked to assess and proactively reduce long-term cardiovascular risk after pregnancy. Our goal for this series? Raise awareness about the intersection between pregnancy and cardiovascular issues and improve your comfort around caring for women who have had or are at risk for cardio-OB problems. You do not have to be an expert to know how and when to engage the Cardio-OB heart team. All you CardioNerbs need to pay attention. And as you take advantage of the medical expertise of the participants in this series, I hope you will also take advantage of the expertise that your patients can provide you, either individually or through Women Heart's trained patient advocates, its champions. I have learned much and have often been humbled by the knowledge, advocacy, bravery, and persistence of women with heart disease and women heart champions and many of my patients. Be open to those insights and learning. To learn more about Women Heart and how it can support your women patients or to help you do so, or to offer to volunteer or donate, go to womenheart.org. Thank you and enjoy the Cardio OB series. (laughs) 